Well, good morning, everyone. If you could please take out your Bibles and open up to the book of Mark. And I'll warn you, I didn't make a PowerPoint for you today, so you're going to have to be looking down in your own uh, copy of the scriptures there. So throughout the book of Mark, Jesus, uh, in just various places throughout his ministry, uh, he, he took the time to, after he performed certain miracles, and it wasn't all the time, but on certain occasions, he would take the time to tell people to remain silent, whether it's the people who experienced those miracles or sometimes those who witnessed the miracles, he told them both to uh, remain silent. And, uh, and we saw that even just a couple of weeks ago where there was a, bl- a blind man who was healed and Jesus instructed him. He said, don't even go to the village. You know, it was, it's like, don't even go close to where you'd be tempted to, to tell and spread the word because the crowds were gathering in such a way that it, sometimes it was obstructing his ability to go where he needed to. Uh, you know, raised issues, scribes and Pharisees were following him around and harassing him everywhere he was going. There's all sorts of reasons to why Jesus at times would ask people uh, to be quiet. And in today's passage, we have another account where he asked his disciples to remain uh, silent on this specific account here. Three of his disciples specifically. But it made me start thinking, how many of you guys are good at keeping secrets? We're in church, you have to be honest. And so by a show of hands, if you're good at keeping a secret, raise your hand. Wow, I'm that's actually not that great. I'm a little disappointed with our performance. All right, if, if it's hard for you to keep a secret, raise your hand. There's some people that just didn't even raise their hands, period. I don't know where you guys are at. I think we all can say there's times in our life that uh, it's easier than other times to maybe keep a secret. Sometimes depends about what the, the secret is about. I remember my sister once, uh, she... It was her birthday, and I heard what she was getting for her birthday, and I just couldn't keep the secret. I was so excited, I just blabbed it out in front of her. It's like, you're getting a Garfield stuffed animal and a Garfield phone. It's going to be amazing. This is back when Garfield was cool. Y'all probably could care less about it. And everybody was mad at me. It was like I revealed in time and location of Jesus' second coming or something. And it was nothing like that. Everybody was like, John, you, you blabbed. And I get it. We all, we all struggle with keeping uh, you know, the secrets remaining silent when we need to. But imagine, you know, Jesus himself asking you, you know, remain silent. Please, you know, don't tell anyone about what you see. Uh, he's instructing you to be silent. And not just about any miracle. The, the miracle that Jesus, the, the event that has happened, it's even hard to know how to, to talk about it. It's so amazing. The event that's about to happen is so miraculous and amazing. It's got to be uh, one of the most amazing events in Jesus' life, short of his actual resurrection. And three of his disciples were able to witness it, and Jesus said, you got to, you got to keep the secret. you got to sit on this one. So in today's passage, three of Jesus' disciples are going to hear the audible voice of God. Three of Jesus' disciples, disciples are going to see Jesus transfigured and glorified and glowing in his body. And they found themselves in the, also in the presence of two Old Testament prophets, one who had been dead for over 1,400 years, the other who had never died. Um, he, had, he, had been, uh, he had been raised up to heaven in fiery chariots over 800 years before uh, this occurrence of the transfiguration. And Jesus told them to tell no one. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be one of these three disciples and just being like, oh, you know, just kind of like feeling like you're a chihuahua, just like shaking to let something out. You know, you just got to do something here. And so Jesus told them not to tell anyone, but here we are 2,000 years later talking about it. They clearly told someone. And in all fairness, Jesus did say, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. And say they, they were given the leeway to be able to share uh, for the other disciples' benefit, and I think also for our benefit as well. And so the context that we're going to be, you know, just so you understand, leading up to this passage and, and flowing into it, the context, uh, Pastor uh, Preston set us up, and he talked about last week, the end of chapter 8 there, 
And it was the, the big question that they were dealing with. They were, they were traveling Caesarea Philippi and then, you know, way up north in the, in the Gentile area. They were seemingly kind of returning back. And, and there was this question that Jesus presented to his disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? And the response was, you know, people think that you might be John the Baptist or Elijah. And there was a lot of confusion about who people thought Jesus was. And into that confusion, Jesus asked a more penetrated question, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as we know, if you were here last week or if you've ever read through the Gospels, you know Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And so to that, into that confusion, Jesus, or Peter spoke that penetrating truth of that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Peter, he gets a lot of pulpit time. He gets a lot of sermon time because of that confession that he made when, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And uh, I think it's important that we kind of clear up some misconceptions with that. Peter was not the first disciple to make that confession. Did you know that? Raise your hand if you knew that. I know it's kind of embarrassing when I make people raise their hands. It's good exercise. Peter was not the first disciple to make that confession. Long before, back at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, in fact, it wasn't Peter, it was actually Peter's brother, Andrew. Peter's brother, Andrew, he was one of John the Baptist's disciples. And John the Baptist was the one, when he baptized Jesus, you know, he said, this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew and one, of, one other of the other disciples of John the Baptist heard this, and they left John the Baptist. They're like, we love you, John, but you just pointed to the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Forgive us if we now go and follow this man, Jesus. And so Andrew uh, was, was one of the first. And he, uh, Andrew, after he went and followed Jesus, it says he went and found his brother Peter. And so this is where Peter, you know, it's hard to know exactly, but Andrew went and found Peter, and he's like, hey, Peter, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. We've found him. So that was an amazing confession of faith right there, isn't it? We found the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus, like right after that, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus called Philip to be one of his disciples. And similar to how Andrew went and found Peter and told him, uh, Philip went and found Nathanael, and he said, Nathanael, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. He's using different terminology, a different way of saying it, but he's saying the same thing. We found the Christ, the Messiah. He made that confession of faith there. And then upon meeting Jesus, Nathanael himself had a little miraculous encounter with Jesus, and he said, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Do you see that same thing that Peter has confessed here in, in chapter 8 was resonated all the way back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry by a lot, if most, probably not all, because Judas was part of the mix there too. But, you know, the, all the, the disciples really were, were recognizing. That's why they were following Jesus is because they're like, this is the guy. John the Baptist has borne witness to him, and we are following him because he is the Christ, the Messiah. So that's what they were doing. So Peter clearly wasn't the first one to make this connection. But his confession also at the same time was unique because it's the only time recorded that Jesus specifically said that the Holy Spirit had revealed this messianic truth to him. Peter didn't figure it out on his own. He didn't figure it out by himself connecting the dots. Uh, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit revealed it to him the same way the Holy Spirit reveals the gospel truth to each one of us. To be clear, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't working when the other disciples made their similar confessions about who Jesus was, but Peter's was uh, unique in that it was stated in this way. Jesus said specifically, you didn't figure this out. The Holy Spirit has taught you this, has shown you this. The point is, is that many of Jesus' disciples, if not um, you know, probably not all, again, because of Judas. They knew from the beginning of their time with Jesus that he was the Christ and the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. That's why they were following him. And I know we like to give Jesus' disciples a hard time for all the different ways they failed, 
But imagine, this was before they had witnessed the miracles, before they had seen Jesus walk on water, calm the storm, school the scribes and Pharisees. They had, before Jesus had even turned water into wine, the disciples had already, you know, the Holy Spirit was already working in the disciples, even in that time, helping to reveal who Jesus is to them. And, uh, and so they didn't have a lot of physical things, miracle things to go on. And I think that's pretty cool, a sign that the Spirit of God was working in the disciples in that way. And then uh, Jesus continued to patiently work with them and teach them and helping to perfect their faith and remove those doubts and the confusion that still resided in the disciples there. And so hopefully you found Mark 9, chapter 2, verse through th- uh, verses 2 through 13. Uh, the sister passages of this are also found in Luke 9 and Matthew 17. And, uh, and we're going to be reading through this, the passage of the transfiguration. It can be broken down into three basic sections. We're probably only get to two, just to forewarn you here. The first section is uh, verses 2 and 3, which is the transfiguration itself, kind of leading up to and the transfiguration of Jesus. And then the second portion is a conversation that happened during the transfiguration. And you know, you'll hear more about that in a moment. And then the third portion was after the transfiguration when Jesus was, uh, and his three disciples were returning, coming back. Jesus had a conversation with his disciples. And, and so again, we're probably not going to be able to get to that portion today and wanted to give you a heads up. And so let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah, first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with the contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the giving of your word. I thank you that your word is life and truth. I thank you for the giving of your Holy Spirit. Like you told Peter, there's no way he could understand these things unless your Spirit revealed that to him. And God, we are in that same exact spot that we are completely and wholly reliant on you to open up our eyes of understanding, to help us to grow in our faith, the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he came to do. So God, I pray that you will help each one of us, that you will penetrate our hearts And help us to know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And so in verse 2, it starts off by saying, after six days. Matthew and Mark's accounts both say after six days. Luke is a little less precise. He says about eight. He probably just bookended it with a couple of little extra days to pat it there. Uh, but not a, not a big discrepancy or anything there at all. Uh, the question is, is, is there a significance within these six days? A lot of times you'll see the significance of numbers in Scripture, the number 12, the number 40, the number 3. You see that, and so some people will look at this and say, what about the number 6? And sometimes you'll go back, you know, well, where do you see the number 6? All the way back, six days of creation. And sometimes we reach and try to make connections when some, sometimes it's just it's six days. That's, that's all there is to it. I'm not saying that God hasn't planned a greater plan than I can see within this, but it doesn't seem like there's a greater significance than just those simple six days there. Um, And so Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. 
This was Jesus' inner circle of disciples that he brought repeatedly with him on extracurricular activities, if you will. They went with Jesus into, into some circumstances and on special occasions when the other disciples were not invited in. We saw one of those circumstances in Mark chapter 5 when Jairus' daughter was, was deathly ill. And Jesus was on his way with his disciples to go and, and heal her. And she ended up passing away. And he went anyways. And Jesus invited the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to come in along with uh, uh, the daughter's parents to come in and witness her being resurrected from the dead. That was one instance. Here in Mark 9, we have another instance of Peter, James, and John going with Jesus up to the mountain uh, for the transfiguration. And then, of course, in Mark 14, one of the uh, most famous times when Jesus invited these same three disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And, uh, and after their prayer, for, prayer performance that they, they experienced today, I'm surprised that Jesus asked them the second time in Mark 14 to come and pray with them again. And you'll see why here in a little bit. But then it continues on in verse 2 there. It says, Jesus led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There's some debate on which mountain that uh, Jesus was referring to here. Uh, some of the early uh, historians, Christian historians and theologians, and this, when I say early, they're still a couple of hundred years removed from the time of Christ. They thought this was Mount Tabor, per perhaps. Uh, the problem with that is that it's a little bit further removed from the Caesarea Philippi area that Jesus and his disciples already were. And so uh, it might have been, might not have been. It's really hard to say. But like I said, there's another mountain. It's called Mount Hermon. That is literally a high mountain. Mount Tabor is only 2,000 feet tall, but it's in a flat plain, and it really juts out, and it's pretty imposing, and it looks massive just because everything else is so flat around it. Mount Hermon, again, is closer into that Caesarea Philippi area that Jesus and his disciples were already traveling. It stands at 9,200 feet. It's in a range of mountains, um, and so it's maybe not quite as imposing, but it's still certainly a high mountain. And so we don't know for sure which one it is, but those are two of the popular options that are proposed there. So the question you know, that I had reading through this passage is what is their purpose? Why did Jesus and it take three of his disciples to go up to the mountain? And we're not told specifically in Mark. We have to go to Luke to figure this out. Uh, we are told that they are going up to the mountain to pray. And that's not surprising. Jesus did that regularly. He regularly went out to pray, sometimes going all by himself, sometimes with a group of his disciples, sometimes in the wilderness, sometimes he would go up uh, into a, a mountain to pray. He was trying to find these places of solitude, places that people wouldn't be crowded around him and be following him necessarily. He needed, he needed that solitude and that time with God to be able to pray. And usually before something big happened, you would find Jesus praying. That's true in the passage today. That's true with Peter's confession. Uh, before uh, Peter confessed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Lord, uh, P Jesus was actually praying there with his disciples. Before the choosing of the 12 disciples, Jesus was praying. Before the walk on the water, Jesus was praying. Before a lot of the miracles, before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus prayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before uh, the crucifixion, Jesus was praying. God loves to work through prayer. We see that continuously modeled in Jesus' life. And if Jesus found it necessary to pray in a good thing, I think we should as well. And so as Jesus was praying, and you'll see in a moment why I say as Jesus was praying, he brought three other guys up on the mountain to pray with him. But I have to say as Jesus was praying, it, Scripture says he was transfigured before them. It said almost nonchalantly, Jesus was transfigured. It's like, how do you even like, like wrap your mind around this other than just saying what it is? I don't know. Jesus was transfigured before them. The Greek word here is metamorpho, and that is the word that we use, and it means metamorphosis, which means to transfigure, to transform, or to change, to change into another form, to transform, transfer. You get this, keep saying the same thing over again. It's basically change. The, this is the same word that we use for a caterpillar that is turning into a butterfly. But that is not a good representation of what happened here and the transfiguration. 
of the caterpillar, when we think about that and the metamorphosis of the caterpillar, it's this little grubby, worm-looking kind of creature that goes into the chrysalis. It turns into this weird kind of goo, and it comes out this beautiful, amazing butterfly. We've done this at home uh, as homeschoolers. That's what homeschoolers do. You know, we do, the, we do the watch the caterpillar turn into the chrysalis, and then the day, you know, that start, the chrysalis starts getting really clear. You know the, bat, the butterfly's about to come out. Everybody's just watching, watching, watching for hours and hours and hours. The butterfly never comes out. And then as soon as you have to go somewhere for like 10 seconds, it doesn't take long at all, all of a sudden the butterfly, out, it's like appeared. And you're like, wow, it's amazing. You see this grubby little wormy creature become a beautiful butterfly. You're like, amazing. That's not what happened here? Yes, that little, that little caterpillar changed. It metamorphosized. It transformed. But in a very different way than Jesus was transformed here. The interesting thing with Jesus is that he was not transforming into something that he was not already. Do you get that? Jesus was not transforming into something he was not already. That caterpillar wasn't already a butterfly. Jesus wasn't transforming into something he, he wasn't already. He wasn't changing into something better. If anything, it was almost like Jesus in this transfiguration was changing back. It wasn't about what he was becoming as much as affirming what he had always been and what he would forever be, the fullness of the triune God. We see this in Colossians 2.9, probably one of the most succinct verses to tell us what is happening in the body of Jesus Christ when it comes to him being, being also God. It says in Colossians 2.9, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You get that? Jesus wasn't becoming deity. He is deity. He wasn't changing into God. He is God. And in the transfiguration, the disciples were finally able to see him for who he has always been and who he forever will be. And so deity was not something that was conferred upon Jesus or bestowed upon him at his birth or at his baptism, at his transfiguration, or at his resurrection even. Deity is who Jesus is. Jesus is God made flesh. In some ways, we can refer to two transfigurations. There are two times that Jesus was seemingly changed. One miraculous transfiguration and change happened when Jesus, God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. That was a significant change. That was major. That was big. That was huge. Again, it's almost like reverse metamorphosis in the way that we think of it. He's taking on a form in some ways that... Uh, I won't say less, but it is definitely different and lesser than the glory that is revealed in Jesus in his, in his deity. He took on flesh. And so that could be viewed as the first uh, transfiguration of God, uh, of Jesus. God made man. And then the second transfiguration, the one that we're talking about today, uh, is the one that Jesus uh, used to help the disciples to really see who he was. He is man, but he is also God. I don't know if they understood immediately what they were seeing in this transfiguration about who Jesus is. There's that big question. Who is Jesus? Jesus is man. He is God. He's truly God and truly man. In John 1.1, 1, 1, though, I don't, I don't know if he fully appreciated this at the time of the transfiguration, but it, John later would say, in the beginning was the word. Every time you hear word in this passage, think of Jesus, because that's who he's talking about. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word Jesus was with God, and the word Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. First uh, transfiguration there. And then we have seen his glory, the glory as the uh, only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Second transfiguration. Do you see the difference between the two? God made man, man seemed to be God. See that? Jesus. I shouldn't just say man. It wasn't just any man. It was Jesus. Jesus made flesh. God made flesh and dwelt among us. First transfiguration. The second one, Jesus, the man, is seen to also be God. So again, I think John here is thinking back at least in part on this event at the transfiguration on the mount here. 
where, you know, he wasn't able to not only see the humanity of Jesus, but also his divinity as well. And Peter and James and John all saw the glory of God radiate in this man, Jesus. Verse 3 tells us what that looks like. Verse 3 says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. Nothing that happened here was humanly possible or had a human explanation. And a lot of times we'll see the pictures of Jesus wearing white garments everywhere he went. That, that probably was not reality. One, because it's super impractical. Even if you have all of our modern day technologies and washing techniques and bleach and all the special detergents that we use, even if you get something white, it's very rarely that white that it could be mistaken for light. And even if it did start off as white, it only takes a few moments for it to become grubby and dingy looking. I know from experience. That's what all my whites end up looking like after a little bit of time. And so Jesus was not, he probably didn't even have on white garments as we would think of white at this time. And for, so for his garments to appear uh, brighter, so bright that it was like bleach can't even explain how white they were. Again, it's, it's a mark is reinforcing that this is not humanly possible or explained. It can't be human explained. Matthew, in his account, adds to this a little bit. He describes it a little bit differently. He says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. That's how bright it was. Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That is bright. I don't, y'all can't fully appreciate how bright light is, white light coming at us, at you, because, but I can because the whole time I'm standing here, there's a bunch of spotlights coming right at me. It's not really fair. I just got to go like this and and whiteness that is bright like the sun is blinding. If I look up, I have to squint. And just in all fairness, I didn't know how to do this very well. This is the biggest flashlight I have. And at least a front row, I'm sorry. I'm going to blind you if I can. But I just want you all to get a little taste about what, like, blinding white light might I'll try it on my kids first. I, haven't, I wanted to test this out, but is that okay? Is that blinding? Good. Okay, here it goes. It's coming around. If you don't want to be blinded, don't look. All right. Oh, I got a sleeper. Not just kidding. This is actually handy. There you go. Blinding white light. Yeah. Is everybody getting an experience? Okay. There we go. Blinding. Can't be mistaken for bleach, can it? Just wanted to make sure. All right. So that's what Matthew is saying that Jesus' transfiguration, transformation looked like to him. It was as light, as light itself. And this is, this is super cool and important to, to like stop and spend some time here. I don't think it's, that, it's a coincidence that in the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament describes God in a similar fashion. No pun intended because we're talking about glowing clothes and such. But in Psalm 104.2, it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's describing God again. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And here it is, covering yourself with light as a garment. Clothing yourself with light as a garment. That's incredible. Light is one of the most amazing things for us. And the source of the, the, the light, as we understand it, is the sun, the, you know, the star, the sun. And we're like, that's the most amazing thing. It gives life, it gives warmth. Everything is reliant on the sun here on this earth for, you know, for life itself. And God here in Psalm 104, it says that he clothes himself with light. The sun is only like a garment. That's the material on, you know, over at Hobby Lobby, he's picking up and making his garments with. That tell you something about the greatness and grandeur of our God. Light is but a garment to him. And so in the transfiguration here, the disciples are seeing that Jesus' clothes are as white as light. Light was his garment. Revelations 21-23 gives us another glimpse into Jesus and his deity. It says, it's talking about the new Jerusalem. And the new heavens and the new earth and the city where God will dwell with his people and his people with God. It says, and this city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb, Jesus. God is light. Jesus is light. He is the source of light. 
You know, we think about we need the sun, but you ever, the sun, the star, we need the sun, the star for life. But have you ever thought about the, the sun, the star needs Jesus? Have you thought about that? He upholds the world by the word of his power. That's, that's who our God is, and Je- that's what Jesus is doing. And this is the glory of God, the glory that can be seen as light is radiating in and through Jesus during this transfiguration. They are seeing him, the disciples are seeing him as he has been and as he forever will be. And that's the first lesson, I think, of the transfiguration, is that it was helping to reveal the fullness of the deity that dwells in Jesus Christ. Now this next portion is interesting because four men went up to the mountain, Jesus and his three disciples, But now there are six. In verse 4, you can follow along there, it says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. As if the transfiguration of Jesus wasn't enough, awesome enough in itself, here we have two Old Testament prophets who were instrumental and powerful prophets in their own right, used by God, and they show up on the scene. Again, Moses He had died 1,400 years earlier. If you're not familiar with Moses, he was instrumental, being used by God to lead the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. He was the giver of God's law. He led Israel through the wilderness and ultimately to the promised land. Not into, but just to the promised land. And then, of course, the prophet Elijah, who had all sorts of amazing miracles that he performed in God's power during his time. Uh, Perhaps most notably, He called down fire from heaven on the 450 prophets of Baal that he had challenged to a duel of sorts. But Elijah is interesting because he didn't die. He never died. He passed his mantle on to another prophet, Elisha. I know it gets confusing with Elijah and Elisha. He passed his mantle on to the other prophet, Elisha, that God would continue to use. And then God took him up in the chariots of fire. And so we've got to stop right here and ask the question, why are Elijah and Moses on the scene? What is the significance of them showing up at the transfiguration? Why did Jesus need to talk to them, to Moses and Elijah? Was it for Jesus's benefit? Was it for Moses and Elijah's benefit? Was it for the disciples' benefit? And I've got to say, I don't know. I'm not sure if anyone purely knows the answer to that question. It's fun to think about. I really wish we could have heard more of their conversation to know what it is that they were talking about. Um, Perhaps we could have if Peter, James, and John hadn't fallen asleep. We didn't see that in Mark's account here. Luke was kind enough because he was the tattletale of the the Gospels here. He, he, He went full bore. He said these guys were sleeping. Peter and James and John, they were sleeping Uh, You know, it's like, why did Jesus invite them back to pray with them at the Garden of Gethsemane when they had already fallen asleep the first time here during the transfiguration? I blame the lack of answers that I want on Peter, James, and John sleeping through one of the most amazing events that they could witness in the time of Jesus, short of his resurrection. I blame those guys. But Luke comes through and he gives us a little bit more to go on here. Luke gives us just a wee bit more. He tells us, and I think it's Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. He says, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and this is what they talked about. They spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they were talking about. As you read through the different accounts, I don't think they were talking about this. I don't think it was a brief conversation. If Peter, James, and John are anything like me, when I fall asleep, I'm falling asleep for a while before anything wakes me up. I don't think this was a brief conversation. They were talking about, what was it? Jesus' departure and what he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Scratch your chin for a moment. What could he possibly be talking about? What are they referring to there? What do you think? How would you answer that? Feel free to talk out loud if you want. What is he referring to? What else could he possibly be talking about other than what Jesus had plainly already told the disciples about in chapter 8? He told, Jesus told his disciples plainly. He said, I must suffer, suffer, I must be rejected and killed, but then I will rise three days later. 
And that's what they are talking about. Jesus is talking about with Elijah and with Moses. Now, it's interesting in this, the root term here uh, that's used for departure. It says they were discussing Jesus' departure. The term for departure is is the same term that we have for the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, Exodus. Isn't that interesting? They were talking, if you want to say it literally, they were talking about Jesus' exodus and what he would accomplish. And I think they did, they, that, is, uh, that connection here is very intentional. It parallels the same, uh, this uh, parallels, uh, the parallels of this setting to that of Moses while on Mount Sinai are apparent. Uh, there was a high mountain, the glory of God was present in the cloud, and God's voice was speaking. We see the parallels of, of Moses' exodus and what he experienced and also of Jesus' experience here on the Mount of Transfiguration and the exodus that is about to take place. You got it? So here are a couple of ways that these are similar. Where Moses's, in Moses' exodus, Jesus freed, or Moses freed just the Israelites. Jesus, in his exodus, would free people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Where Moses freed the Israelites from being enslaved to Egypt, Jesus would free the world from being slaves to sin. Where the Israelites found themselves repeatedly returned to slavery, Jesus' work was decisive, effective, final, and eternal. Jesus, uh, just as Moses performed the miracles of God in front of Pharaoh, Jesus performed the ultimate work of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus in the face of his enemies. And he set the captives free once and for all. And so the work that Moses did was similar to Jesus, or Jesus was similar to Moses, but Jesus was way better, way grander, on a much grander scale there. I think rightly, Moses himself said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Isn't that interesting? A prophet like me, God will raise up from among you and among your brothers, and you shall listen to him. Did you hear anything similar to that in the transfiguration passage that we just read? In verse 7, I think it was, Jesus, or God said, this is my beloved son. What came next? Listen to him. Listen to him. So what's the, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah's appearance here? Well, I think one is to make that direct connection between Moses' exodus and Jesus' exodus. A much better exodus is here. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Moses and Elijah both were present here, I think in part to testify to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, and that it was true. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish, I have come to fulfill. Anyone can make that claim. But now when you make that claim and you have the giver of the law and a great representative of the prophet both there testifying to what you said, now it can be established as as truth. You get it? They're both there. It's like, this is true. Jesus, uh, Jesus has come not to abolish, but to fulfill. What, you know, the law could never do It couldn't solve the problem of sin. The law pointed out very effectively that we are sinners, but the law never got rid of sin. It never took care of that problem of sin. It never restored the relationship of God's people with God himself. It never solved the problem of sin. In the same way, the the fiery judgment that Elijah called down from heaven on the prophets of Baal who were serving idols and to replace God with these idols, that fiery judgment would not turn the hearts of men. It wouldn't solve the problem of sin and turn the hearts of the men back to God. The law and the fiery judgment didn't do what Jesus, only Jesus could do on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. So just to recap the scenario here real quick, Jesus was praying, or I'm sorry, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray with Peter, James, and John. Jesus was praying, and he was transfigured. Moses and Elijah showed up talking with Jesus. We don't know how long. Guessing it wasn't brief, though. Um, And then what were the disciples doing this whole time? Y'all know now, right? They were sleeping. They were sleeping, like Luke 9.32 tells us. They were heavy with sleep. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Talking a moment about a moment you wish you had back, you know, just the regrets. Man, I wish I wasn't sleeping. I wish I, I was awake and I could have experienced and seen this more. And after fully waking up and surveying the scene, it's Peter who is notorious for being the first to speak. In verse 5 and 6, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say because they were terrified. This was not just light. This was, this was the glory of God that they were in the presence of, and it terrified them. There is no other response that we as sinful can, men can have in the presence of God than being terrified because sin is consumed by God. Sin cannot be in his presence with God. It is separated from them. And they had the only response, I think, that we can have as sinful men in being terrified. And Peter spoke out of this terror, just throwing out there, hey, let's build some tents. There's some, there's some perhaps other connections in the Old Testament we don't have time to, uh, to unpack this morning here. But suffice it to say is Peter didn't know what was going on, really, and he's speaking out of a place of terror. And, uh, and just, you know, he's, he's making a suggestion there. And I think God graciously interrupted Peter at this point. God graciously cut him off. It says in verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. We've heard that at another place, right? At Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. But again, a little bit different here is that the voice from heaven says, listen to him. Same as Moses said back in Deuteronomy, listen to him, listen to him. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says, long ago, at many times and in many different ways, God spoke to us through his prophets, by our fathers and the prophets. But it says, in these last days, he has spoke to us through his, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You've listened to all these various ways and the fathers and the prophets and the ways that God spoke in the Old Testament, but now God has spoken in one way, the final way. And if you want to hear God speak, this is how he has spoken with finality in a way far better than he has ever spoken in the, in the past. He has spoken through his son Jesus, who is the exact representation of God and his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and it is Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen to him. In the middle of the disciples' journey, coming, like zooming back out again, the disciples are on a journey to understand who Jesus is. We know they had an idea back from even the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, but we know that that concept that they had was extremely incomplete. They, they struggled, you know, like Peter. He, he said, you're the Christ, the Messiah. But then we saw that struggle, and immediately he rebuked Jesus. If he had known really who Jesus is, that Jesus is God, would he have had the audacity to say what he did? Probably not. And I love to see how gracious that God is, that Jesus is with his disciples, knowing that, you know, they're, their understanding is confused and so much still needs to, to be unfolded and for them to understand. Jesus was extremely patient and gracious with him, with all of them. See, they had the expectations, and Pastor Preston talked about this some last week. They had the expectations of, of that the Messiah would be the, the literal king up on a throne in Jerusalem at that time and overthrow Rome. They had all of these expectations of what that would mean for, physic, for them physically in their life at that time. They had expectations of glory and of grandeur that they would argue, you know, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's going to sit next to Jesus you know, at his right hand? They had all these misconceptions about what the kingdom of God would mean. And those presuppositions were being challenged by Jesus in his, in his teachings about his suffering and his death. 
Like Jesus, again, said last week, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will, uh, will gain it. They were struggling just like we do when life doesn't go as planned, when God doesn't do what we think that he should do. They were struggling to take up their cross. They were struggling to deny themselves. They were struggling in their response, and God graciously gave them this glimpse of his glory in response. This is much like what God did for Moses. Remember Moses, he was on, the Mount, he was on Mount Sinai, and the Israelites were just absolutely disobedient and dishonoring God, had almost immediately turned to idols. And God was almost, he was just like, I'm through with them. I'm through with them. It's like, I'm not even going to go with you to the, to the promised land. You're going to go on your own. And Moses is like, I can't do this on my own. I'm not going to leave this mountain. I can't leave here without you. I can't do this without you. It's like, I, I have to have you. Moses was called to lead the, the sinful Israelites through the wilderness for all these decades and decades, and he knew he couldn't do it without God, and he was right. But before Moses would lead the Israelites to the promised land, he said something important. He prayed this. He says, God, will you show me your glory? Will you show me your glory? It's like one of the greatest prayers. It's like, I know it's going to be hard. This is going to stink. The Israelites have already proven themselves Horrible people to work with. Got it. If I'm going to do this, I need to see your glory. I need to see your glory. And, and God did that. God answered that request to Moses. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Talking about overwhelming. We don't really have a great working definition of God's glory. It's less, it's kind of like beauty. It's less something that you define and it's more something that you see. And that's why it's so hard to really define what it is. But Moses got to see it. He got to see God's glory. Jesus' disciples, they were struggling with this whole new revelation that Jesus had come to, to sacrifice himself and be persecuted and die on a cross. How are we going to move on? How can we continue to live? And I think, again, God graciously showed them by giving them a glimpse of his glory. I think that is what God gives to us all through his son, Jesus Christ, a glimpse of his glory. God's most gracious response in the midst of our conflicts, doubts, struggles, and discouragement is to show us his glory. It's not to remove us out of the trial, not to remove the testing away from us, it's to show us his glory, which is seen most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. Doesn't make the struggles go away, but it makes them worth it. One of my favorite passages is Romans 8, 18. It says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's another great promise. Not just that God will show us his glory, that we get to see his goodness. I think this is another great promise I don't want us to miss, miss out on. God is also giving us a reward to share in his glory. God's most gracious reward for our conflicts, doubts, and struggles, and discouragement is not only to show us his glory, but to allow us to graciously share in his glory. Write this verse down right here, because I love it. Philippians 3.21. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is it, in verse 21. He says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Do you get that? Part of God's graciousness is helping us to see his glory, but then also letting us share in that because our, our lowly bodies will be like his glorious body. Why is the transfiguration important? Because it's giving us a glimpse about what God is going to do in us. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be revealed to the glory that is be revealed in us and in our future glorified bodies that God gives to us. And I think in this way, metamorphosis does make sense. We are becoming something that we are not yet. Jesus has always been and forever will be glorious and beautiful. But we are sinners 
corrupted by our sin. We are, we are blinded to our sin. We are desperate in our state, hopeless to save ourselves. And yet, God comes, sends his son, Jesus, to become flesh in all of his glory, to take on flesh and die a death that we deserved. That is glorious. And the, the reward that we have for that is not worthy to be compared, that our sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What amazing promise that we will all get to see his glory and we can share in his glory. Verse 8 continues on and says, And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And just like that, it was over. Verses 9 through 10 continue on and says, As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Why did Jesus instruct Peter and James and John to sit on this amazing revelation of his glory? Why did he ask them not to say anything? I think we got a little bit of a clue. It's actually kind of humorous a little bit. Like right after the transfiguration, this account is in Luke 9, uh, 54, if you want to look it up. But I think part of the reason why Jesus told them to sit on it is because they they would not fully understand what the transfiguration meant until they understood the resurrection. They wouldn't understand it. And we see this in Luke 9.54. James and John, remember, they'd just seen Elijah. So keep that in mind. And Elijah had called down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal. Jesus and the disciples were now going through a village and uh, they were preparing to go to Jerusalem and for the Son of Man, Jesus, to be crucified. And that village had not received them well. I don't know exactly how. They didn't receive them well. And you know what Peter or what James and John said? They said, Jesus, call down fire from heaven and annihilate them. Did they understand the transfiguration? No, I don't think they did. They didn't understand the transfiguration. I think that's why Jesus said, just sit on this one. Let it. Let it soak in before you go and start telling everybody else. Let it soak in because you're not going to fully understand it until after the resurrection of Jesus. How can the resurrection helps us to understand the transfiguration? This was the disciples' struggle. How can Jesus, the Christ Messiah, both suffer and be glorified through the resurrection? How can Jesus both die and rescue sinners? How are those compatible? Through his death and resurrection. How can Jesus deal the final blow to sin and death and hell and pronounce judgment on a sinful world all at the same time? Through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus can because he's worthy. He's worthy. So what did the transfiguration teach us? It taught us that Jesus is God. The fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. It taught us that Jesus came to lead an exodus like Moses, but far greater. The transfigurist taught us that Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets, doing what the law and prophets could not do. Jesus came to defeat the power of sin and death and hell once and for all. And God was so gracious, and he revealed his glory to us through his son Jesus. And God is gracious and allows us to not only see his glory, but also that we will be transformed in our bodies to be like him in his glory.